call is now being recorded. Hello, this is Mark Rubenstein. Welcome to the podcast, Writer to Writer. I'm privileged today to be talking with Danny Schechter, who wrote a fascinating book called Madiba A to Z, The Many Faces of Nelson Mandela. Danny Schechter is an Emmy Award-winning producer for ABC News and has worked throughout the television industry. He's also the author of, believe it or not, 16 books. He's produced and directed six documentary films about Nelson Mandela. Danny recently wrote a fascinating book about Nelson Mandela entitled Madiba A to Z. He talked with people ranging from Thabo Mbeki to Nadine Gordima, from uh, Mandela's prison cellmates to his guards, from former members. Madiba A to Z paints an intimate portrait of Nelson Mandela and I Russell. Think, I think we had a big audio break over there, sorry to say. Maybe we should start again. Okay, well, I, I, uh, you may not have heard me, but I'm sure the, the audience has heard me, okay? Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, paints an intimate portrait of Nelson Mandela and wrestles with the questions of Mandela, uh, that Mandela himself raised. What is forgiveness? What are justice and equality? And how long must uh, the long walk to freedom go on uh, before we are free? It's my privilege to uh, introduce uh, Danny Schechter. Good morning, Danny. Hey, pleasure to be with you, and, and uh, of course, this is a sad time since uh, Nelson Mandela was buried just yesterday in South Africa. South Africa said goodbye to him tearfully, uh, millions of people uh, commemorating his passing in, a, in a, almost a celebratory fashion. Yes. So, uh, you know, he now belongs to the world, as, as they say. Yes, they do, and, and it's true. Uh, first, Danny, can you tell us the meaning of the word Madiba? Yeah, Madiba is a tribal clan name. Uh, the you know Mandela grew up in a tribal area, part of a Kosa tribe, and uh, within the tribe there are many different clans. And he was uh, referred to reverentially as Madiba, which is a, a sign of affection and respect uh, for a senior member of, of of the tribe. And he's been known as part of the Madiba clan, and hence that name is something that's on everyone's lips in South Africa. Madiba, M-E-D-I-B-A. Okay. And how did you first uh, get to meet and then get to know Nelson Mandela? Well, there's a little bit of a backstory here. I, I went to South Africa at age 25 when I was at the London School of Economics uh, on a mission uh, to support the anti-apartheid movement. I could get into the country because I had an American passport. A lot of South Africans in exile couldn't. So I, I was sent there, uh, what turned out to be a, a kind of act of bravery or stupidity. I'm not sure because it was a, a very scary time there. This was the darkest days of apartheid, 1967. And as a consequence, I began to learn more and more about the country. When I got there, Mandela was beginning his life sentence on Robben Island, the draconian prison off the coast of Cape Town. So uh, I didn't meet him then. You know, nobody could see him. In fact, his image was kept from the public. No photographs, no interviews, no nothing. And the idea when he got to the prison, he was told specifically, you will leave in a box. The IE, you know, this is this is in effect a death sentence. So 
you know, I, I didn't meet him then, but of course I knew of him. I had read some of his speeches and had read about him. And then years later, 1990, I was producing a television series called South Africa Now for public television. This was on not only all over the United States, but also uh, in about 40 countries. And when he was released from prison, we managed to get one of our people into the country to cover his release. I was banned by the South African government. I couldn't go there. But, uh, you know, we were reporting on it anyway. And so uh, finally I heard that he was leaving uh, South Africa to travel to Zambia, one of the neighboring countries where his movement, the African National Congress, had, had their base. And so I decided I would go there and meet him there, and we set up an interview with him for the Phil Donahue show, which was seen live uh, in the United States and was a way of uh, giving him an audience that he never had before. You know, when he went to prison, there was no television in South Africa. They only got it in 1976. He, he had very little experience with television. But yet, when he got out of prison, he became a, a TV natural and, and began to get interviewed by every top anchorman, every top journalist in the world. So uh, we interviewed him for our South African Now series. We actually had a South African journalist interview him. And then we went to Lusaka, Zambia, and that's where I first met him. And needless to say, was in awe of him, impressed by him, as were all of his colleagues who hadn't seen him in 30 years. There was a tearful embrace at the airport. The entire country seemed to have come out to the airport to welcome and greet him. And so, you know, it was a, a triumphant moment. It was a extremely, um, uh, you know, we weren't we weren't sure who is this guy. Will he live? Is he uh, is he being hyped? But what we found was that. You know, the hype was right. He was an extraordinary leader, very articulate, very thoughtful, and, you know, I was very happy to meet him. And then I ended up traveling with him to other parts of Africa, to Europe, where he connected with his his uh, former law partner, Oliver Tambo, who was running the ANC in exile. He had had a stroke and was in Sweden. I went there. Uh, I was part of the organizing of a big concert, Wembley, in Wembley in England. Uh, two million people saw it worldwide, but unfortunately it wasn't shown in the United States. And then he came to America in June of 1990, and I was asked uh, to cover the trip, and we got on the plane and traveled with him to eight cities in 11 days. So I had, you know, daily exposure to him and did get to interview him and did get to be in his presence, so to speak, and he got to to, to know me a little bit. Uh, and we, I then went on and made five other films. The first one was, this one was called Mandela in America. Mm-hmm. Mm. Danny, we know a good deal about Mandela's journey in life, if you want to call it a journey. Uh, actually, it really was uh, quite a journey. But he, called it a lo- he called it a long walk. The long a long, long walk. walk. Freedom, okay. and that was the name of his autobiography written in prison. Yes. So uh, now it's the t- title of a movie, Mandela, mm-hmm. Long Walk to Freedom, that's coming out Christmas Day all over the United States, starring Idris Elba, Naomi Harris. And I was in South Africa. Uh, documenting the making and the meaning of that movie mm-hmm. when I began to talk with all these people who were around him and realized that even though I had done all these films, even though I had reported on him, uh, you know, probably more closely than most uh, journalists, uh, there was still a lot I didn't know about him. 
And that led to this book, Mediba A to Z, The Many Faces of Nelson Mandela. Let me ask you this. Uh, as I said, we, we, we know a lot about his long walk to freedom, about his journey in his life. Tell us what you know or what you think about his inner psychological journey over the course of his life. Well, you know, there's one thing that somebody very close to Mandela told me, is that the minute you start getting very personal with him, a shudder comes down, okay? And he shuts off, uh, you know, inquiries he's uncomfortable with because he's had a painful past. He's, you know, he lost his his uh, father, then his mother. He lost... Uh, he was young when he lost yeah, them, two of his children. Uh, he lost essentially his most active years being confined uh, to a prison. Uh, he, you know, had to go inside a lot in order to just survive. He became an athlete and had this incredible discipline as an athlete of, of exercise. And he carried that uh, from outside the prison to inside the prison where he drove a lot of his comrades crazy because he pushed them to do more physical exercise. And I think it was that physical discipline that kept, has kept him alive so long, despite, you know, living in an environment where for, you know, 10 years there was no hot water, okay, there was no, uh, he, he, you know, he lived in the cold, he lived in, he slept on the floor, you know, he was really tested physically and psychologically and survived those tests, so he's somebody who really came to know himself, and that's, uh, and became, as he said, he matured in prison. He had a chance to think. And one of the things that when he left prison, he missed about prison was not having that time to think, that time to reflect, that time to have deeper conversations with, with his close, uh, you know, comrades in this prison uh, that he was confined to. So in that sense, there are elements of his personal life uh that we'll never know, you know, because he's not somebody who's a, into self-hyping himself, you know, the whole phenomenon mm -hmm. of the selfie, you know. He was not into promoting himself. He always saw himself as part of the struggle of his people. He believed in collective leadership, not personal leadership, and was often very loath to, you know, speak for the movement. He always consulted, as he said, with, with his colleagues. So there was that aspect to him. At the same time, he was very thoughtful, and his last book is called Confessions uh, for Myself, which is, you know, he goes into, you know, issues that he feels he, he was flawed as a person. He always said he's not a saint, he's not a savior. Uh, and he was very aware of that, even though he was mythologized constantly and adored constantly and celebritized by the media, you know, which, which you know, saw him as somehow a Superman or, or you know, or, or somebody who was a, um, uh, you know, a, a, a person that had extraordinary powers, a magic wand to change South Africa. He didn't. He was very clear about that. So he was a very humble person in addition to being a very celebrated person. Okay, in, in Mediba A to Z, you have a chapter. By the way, it's a unique structure to the book. It begins with A and ends with Z, and each chapter uh, 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 details some aspect of Nelson Mandela, beginning with the letter. Uh, uh, in the chapter that's for F, for forgiveness, you discuss the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and Nelson Mandela's own words about forgiving those who imprisoned him, and I want to quote them. He said, quote, As I walked out the door toward my freedom, 
I knew that if I did not leave all the anger, hatred, and bitterness behind, I would still be in prison, unquote. Tell us a little bit more about that, about Nelson Mandela. Well, he, he began to see his jailers as human beings who were trapped in a cycle of fear and ignorance. They really didn't understand uh, the country they lived in. They didn't really understand the majority of the people uh, that they were in. They had a superiority complex at the same time in many cases. These prison guards with whom he mixed were the poorest, least educated Afrikaner people. And so he taught himself the language of Afrikaans so he could talk to them in their own language and show them respect. And as a result, many of the people uh, in in the prison uh, who guarded him became close to him and began to learn from him. He encouraged them to educate themselves. He was very um, persistent in, in, in promoting what they called studies, you know, that, that the prison guards should improve themselves. He asked about their families. He got to know their children. He, he had a way of insinuating himself into people's lives in a way that they welcomed. You know, living in a prison, don't forget the prison guards are prisoners too. They're trapped in that environment, taught to hate the people they're guarding. And he, you know, was able to break through the ice, so to speak. And in the end, the government of the day, which had, you know, feared him as a communist, a terrorist, had labeled him, had demonized him, uh, talked to him. And they realized that they had to talk to him if there was going to be a settlement in the country. He himself was very conscious that he was not negotiating, per se, but facilitating negotiations. And he was willing to talk with them, even though many of his colleagues distrusted them, felt he was being used, felt he was, you know, um, being taken advantage of. But he was very clear that there had to be a breakthrough. And that this, as he said, this is how it starts. Uh, the, the breakthrough to some sort of resolution, which led to not only a, a new government, but some degree of reconciliation. Uh, but, you know, of course, South Africa still has very sharp economic divides. The racial divides uh, have, have, you know, are still there, but, but they're less intense than they were. But the economic divides, the inequality, the poverty is very pervasive. Mm-hmm. Danny, in, in the chapter entitled Humble, uh, H being humble, you describe uh, a talk you had with South African writer Nadine Gordimer and her views of Mandela as, quote, an ordinary man, unquote. Give us some insights about that. Well, if you, can. you know, she saw, for example, when he came out of prison, you know, he, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> when he came out of prison, the world welcomed him. He was celebrated. He was he was being cheered everywhere he went. At the same time, privately, he was in terrible despair and, and pain. His family that he had treasured, and his wife Winnie, and he came to a, a you know parting of the ways. Mm-hmm. He was suddenly extremely lonely. Uh, you know, and one of the things about being in prison is there's a camaraderie. There's a you know everybody is sharing the same awful food, the same terrible conditions, and so they bond with each other. Now he was alone and surrounded by a new set of guards, you know, security men and the like, and expected to, you know, walk on water and deliver a whole new, what they call dispensation, a whole new South Africa, as if he personally could do it, and he knew he couldn't. So he was under a lot of tension, and 
he concealed it well. He was, a, on some levels, one of the things I discuss in my book is how he became a performer, mm-hmm. playing a role, and the role was Nelson Mandela, which he created. He created uh, somebody who was beyond, uh, you know, anything that had gone before. You know, he, 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 the reason I talk about him as an A to Z is that everybody tends to have one image of him, you know, cuddly grandfather, uh, you know, Prince of Peace, uh, you know, a person who left hatred behind. You know, all we reduce him to all these, I would say, uh, if not stereotypes. We, they're almost we, they're almost platitudes. Uh, you know, what we, what, yeah. the, the Nelson Mandela we would like to see, but he was much more complicated by than that. Mm-hmm. And he also had, you know, a lot of intense personal feelings because he was cut off from his family and his children, his daughter. His first daughter said, you're the father of our country, but you're not being a father to me. Mm-hmm. So no matter what he did, there was somebody there who wanted more from him, uh, demanded more and the like. And Nadine Gordermer saw him in this period when he came out of prison. She had known him uh, before and, you know, was was um, felt very empathetic you know, to what he was going through and how he really couldn't talk about it very much, but it was clear on his face that he was in tremendous pain, uh, as well as, of course, uh, triumphant because he had outlived and outlasted the people who wanted to kill him. Yes. In your chapter, Global for g uh, you discuss many things about the, uh, the seeming mythology about Nelson Mandela, and in that same chapter, you also mentioned Clint Eastwood's film Invictus and the role that uh, it seems the American film industry had in, in crafting part of Mandela's global image. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more yeah, about I mean, that? It's, 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 um, you know, it, it, there's some contradictions in it. First of all, I'm very proud that it was my daughter who works in Hollywood that found the book that was the basis of, of that movie and worked oh, with Eastwood on it. So I have a, some personal connection to it. It just dramatized a one incident where Mandela embraced um, rugby, which is the, one of the national sports there, which was a sport that the Afrikaner community uh, was very wrapped up in. And, and he supported the rugby players because it was a way of also engaging the Afrikaner community and, and, and making them a stakeholder in the new South Africa. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the hatred was based on fear. You know, if, if Mandela is free, they're going to do to us what we did to them. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a, this fear of revenge and retaliation. And he attempted to transcend that by identifying with, with something that they were very, uh, you know, involved and absorbed by, which is sports. And, uh, he, you know, he learned about rugby. It was not his favorite. A lot of South Africans hated the rugby team, the Springboks. But he backed them in a, in a World Cup competition, which they won. And that was a turning point. Forgive me. I'm fighting a winter cold here. You're doing very well, Danny. Don't worry Thank about you. it. <laughs> Are you there? Yes, I'm with you. Oh, okay, great. Um, you've already touched upon this a little bit, but I'd like you, if you can, to, to tell us a bit more. You mentioned in, in the chapter called Jailed, you describe Nelson Mandela's imprisonment. 
Uh, tell us a bit more about his route. I found this uh, absolutely fascinating because it's difficult to imagine surviving 27 and a half years in a small cell block with uh, you know, under his conditions. Tell us about his uh, routines. You've already mentioned something about his relationship. You know, he told the guard. I interviewed some of his guards. You know, this yes. guy, kind of an Afrikaner, uh, didn't speak English very well. Was um, you know, had, was a believer in apartheid, okay? And Nelson Mandela sort of chipped away at that belief and he confided in, in him to some degree and, and encouraged him. He told, um, you know, this guard, um, Christo Brandt, he said, uh, there isn't enough time in the day. You know, in other words, he had so much stuff to do. He was so organized. He he had a vegetable garden, okay? Mm -hmm. He read biographies. He taught himself Afrikaans. He learned about Islam. He learned about a lot of different subjects, and he made it a point to study. Then he left time for exercise every single day. But then, you know, there were meetings with, with his colleagues, and he was one of the people who turned the prison into what was later called Mandela University. Mm -hmm. As the younger uh, prisoners came in, uh, many of them had, had never had a decent education, and they were taught in the prison. Among the people taught in the prison is the president of South Africa, Jacob Zuma, who we've seen in the last few days at the funeral speaking and whatnot. He learned English in the prison, and uh, Mandela was one of his teachers. So there's there's a role that he played, and he was also, when I mentioned before, as a performer, he played the part of Creon, Sophocles, Antigone. He played Abraham Lincoln in a prison play. So he was a, very conscious of being a performer, and as a lawyer who is known as a great cross-examiner, he had to be a performance artist. That's what you do as a lawyer. You speak to juries. You speak to judges. You try to persuade them, and he was very good at doing that. So he had this very reflective side, but he also was a very good communicator, even though what he communicated a lot of the times was who he was, what his values were, what he stood for. And I think that's what impressed people as much as what he actually said, all right? Because he wasn't a spellbinding speaker in the Martin Luther King sense. He wasn't a preacher. In fact, he wasn't really even religious, which is kind of ironic given all the religious ceremonies that, that, he's, that his, his memory has been wrapped up in. I was at a... Mm -hmm. At a, one at the Riverside Church in New York with choirs and preachers and the like. I don't think he would have felt very comfortable there. Uh, and, and, and with all the admiration and, and devotion that people were showing to him because he really wanted to celebrate the ordinary people of South Africa. He wanted to celebrate uh, the struggle of the people of South Africa. So, you know, what this goes to is a really interesting question about, you know, who makes history? In the end, is it, as we learn in school, the great men? You know, the first thing we learned when I was in school was the names of the presidents, okay? Right. Uh, right. Is it the great men? Is history uh, kind of a top-down process of great leaders? and, and uh, Or is it a bottom-up process of great movements and struggles for independence in America's case, or the Civil War, or the Civil Rights Movement? You know, mm -hmm. where people themselves are mobilized uh, to to, to uh, achieve great goals. And, you know, in the case of Mandela's release from prison, you mentioned global. You know, it was the world that came to his 
aide, so to speak, who, who, who sang his praises, sang his name, uh, who marched on his behalf and the rest of it. And that's really what put the pressure on the South African government as well as sanctions, uh, UN resolutions, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, and and uh, armed pressure and pressure by the the ANC's armed wing. So you know, it was a a struggle with many different. They said it was a table with four legs to it, and mm-hmm. we don't see it that way. We don't look at history as a process. Usually, we look at it as great dates. You know, this is what we learn. You know, great dates and great names. You know, August twenty eighth, nineteen sixty three, March on Washington. Right. Martin Luther King was there, and he said these words: "I have a dream." And in the story, full stop. That's what people know. Right. And unfortunately, that robs the events and the history of its meaning. Uh, I was one of the organizers of the March on Washington, so I remember that day very, very vividly. And. It wasn't just I have a dream. King was one of eight speakers. There was a lot mm-hmm. more going on. So mm-hmm. this, and the same is true of, of Mandela. And I went with him to Martin Luther King's grave in Atlanta, Georgia, where he and Winnie brought flowers at the Martin Luther King Center there. And he was asked about nonviolence. And he said, you know, nonviolence is a good policy if you can be nonviolent. We couldn't be because mm-hmm. we were, every time we stood up to be nonviolent, we were slaughtered. That's so. Right. That's why they responded with an armed struggle. And the other day, this is so fascinating, Newt Gingrich, you know, kind of right-wing, Georgia, former congressman, majority leader, mm-hmm. uh, presidential candidate, wrote an essay defending Nelson Mandela, okay? And some of his, the knuckleheads who support him, okay, you know, denounced what he wrote. You know, Mandela was a communist, how could you blah, 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 blah. And he really... He's also a history teacher, actually, uh, Gingrich. And he said, you know, you guys are talking about being patriots and supporting the American Revolution. Well, that's what he was doing. He he was waging a revolution, you know, to change a very unjust system. How can you not see that? You know, so even on the right wing, this is an issue that that has resonance and, and is being debated. That's why my book, Madiva A to Z, I think is very relevant, not just uh, you know, for the history of Nelson Mandela, but for this whole period to recognize how many people and how many countries and how many different movements rallied around this issue for reasons that also have to do with their needs about racism mm-hmm. in their countries and the mm-hmm. like. So, I'm one last too, am I getting too passionate here for you? No, no, I'm you're so, not. I'm no, sorry. Uh, one, I have one last question <laughs> that I'd like I'd like to bring it to a little bit of a more personal level level yeah, sure. uh, in relation to Mr. Mandela. In the chapter entitled "Love and Loss," you talk about his loves and his regrets. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, you know, he was he was a very handsome man. You know, when he was recruited by by the ANC, they thought he looked like a prince, and that would help them in their recruitment and efforts because he was a tall, uh, very good-looking guy, a very good dresser. He was a, he actually learned ballroom dancing. He was mm-hmm. a, he was a you know a, a bon vivant you know. Ladies, you cover all of this very very the, well in the, the book. Ladies the ladies loved him. He was considered yeah. even a womanizer in that early period, and so. Uh, you know, this was a magnetic, charismatic uh, figure, okay? 
at the same time, he wasn't really an ideologue. He was very pragmatic. You know, when you're a lawyer, you're a deal maker, basically, a negotiator, you know, for mm-hmm. uh, the right sentence and one. In the film, Mandela Long Walk to Freedom, we see him in those early days in the courtroom, you know, representing poor clients. And this is something uh, that's a side of his, uh, you know, importance that people don't recognize. He dealt with people as individuals. He didn't only deal with masses and slogans and big groups. He was always make a point. Of you know, I tell a story in, in in the book about him coming into the elevator where his office was, and there was a man in the elevator who sees him and can't get a job and is disappointed and starts yelling at him. Okay, and he he reaches into his pocket, takes out a number two pencil, and into the other pocket he takes out a pad, and he asks the man, "What is your name? Okay, what is your? How can I reach you? Do you have a phone number? Do you have a place I can contact you?" The man gives it to him. He says, somebody will reach out to you. We'll try to see if we can't help you. So he was he was a, um, you know, responsive in that way uh, to individuals who, who approached him. He loved children. He loved what? What uh, about his meetings. regrets, Danny? His regrets. What? You know, what at did, one what? point, at one point, he regretted doing everything. He felt like he had given his life away. Okay, mm-hmm. to the movement. He felt. Mixed feelings about it. You know, everybody goes through this, you know. I mean, uh, I certainly do, uh, you know, as well. You know, it's so frustrating. I've been involved in this for so many years, and many of those years were very frustrating. No one was listening to us. No one was appearing to care very much about it. The United States government was supporting apartheid, okay? The American media wasn't covering the story fully. You know, and, and, and when you have a sense of passion about something and you see indifference around you or just a lack of caring, uh, kind of paternalistic attitude, it's it's upsetting, you know. And so I'm sure that he went through these periods also of regret. One of the stories we don't know about Robin Island is that many men cracked in there mentally, mm-hmm. just as they do in prisons in America where they're in through long years of confinement and abusive treatment. Uh you know they 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 lose it you know and and I, and he managed not to lose it but i think at sometimes it was it was uh difficult you know at one point in the film it dramatizes the guard you know coming up to him and he almost you know slams the guy and one of his colleagues says no no don't do that if you do that they win if you show anger mm-hmm. so he he became extremely disciplined but when you take everything inside it has an impact on you as well. I mean, could he have imagined how his life would turn out when he went into prison? You know, don't forget, in the, in the trial, he said, I am prepared to die. They all expected to be hung, okay? It was a reprieve, and they were sentenced to life imprisonment. But none of them really thought they would ever get out of that prison. Nobody mm-hmm. thought that the, what, what happened would happen or and as quickly you know, when South Africa, the old white regime began to fall apart because of all the pressure, or that he would walk, go from being a prisoner to a president. I mean, you can't even make that up. You can't imagine that. Yeah. And, and yet he, he stayed true to himself and to his course of action. He cared about the people around him. He gave, provided them with, you know, leadership and, 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 a, and an ear 
to listen to their issues and their problems. And I, I think that's why he was loved and respected so much, because people saw him as one of them, as a member of their family. And there were so many South African families that broke up because of apartheid, forced mm -hmm. relocations, mm -hmm. uh, minors who had to leave their homes for months and months at a time to labor in these terrible conditions, you know, leaving their families behind. In other words, separation and breakup, and it's a very South African story. And so it, it happened to him, too, even though he was, in a sense, the blessed leader. So, you know, this is what he is. And, you know, on the one hand, this great man. On the other hand, uh, a, 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 an ordinary person caught up in an extraordinary time and an extraordinary movement. That's why... I felt so privileged personally to be able to have access to him at all, to be able to cover this up close and personally. Not, not that many Americans had that chance. Uh, I mean, there were reporters for mainstream newspapers who did interviews with him and all this, but I don't think they had uh, were around him as much. You know, they would go to a press conference or what have you. There were some uh, journalists who worked with him. Uh, who helped him work on his book, The Long Walk to Freedom, and all the rest of it. So it's not its not like I didn't have, I wasn't the only one by any means. But what I've tried to do here is combine in this book, Medeep A to Z, my own reporting and, and, and uh, anecdotes and experience over a long period of time with inter fresh interviews. I interviewed the clerk. I interviewed former President Thabo Mbeki. I interviewed uh, Bishop Tutu. I interviewed people who were his soulmates and prison mates. Uh, and I try to talk with them conversationally, like I'm talking to you, you know, not as a Mr. Interviewer, Mr. News Guy, mm -hmm. but as somebody who knew about, you know, what they were going through and who cared about them, because I do, you know. And so this is what I, I think I was able to, quote, get, <laughs> you know, for this book. And Seven Stories Press was incredibly supportive. You know, we I wrote it in June, and we've had it out in October. It's a very quick turnaround over the summer uh, for a book like this. And it's also published in South Africa, which I'm very proud of, that South Africans find it of value. Because, you know, I'm an American. What does an American know about their, their struggle, et cetera, and so forth? But they published it as well, Jakana Press in South Africa. So, uh, And we have a website. Madiba eight or rather excuse me Madiba book m a d i b a book dot com in which uh, some of the interviews I've been doing about the book appear. Hopefully, when the podcast of this program comes out, we can uh, offer it through through this website as well. And there's a selection from the book in the website. So you know I'm trying to share this with people as much as possible and, and um, reviews and all the rest of it. So. You know, to me, this is an ongoing process because I was very troubled by the um, funerals. You know, all the all the sweet words of all these foreign leaders, often hypocritical in many cases because mm -hmm. of the human rights situation in their own country, uh, the way in which Mandela was was lauded as as a as a superhero, as a god. You know, all of that would would have made him very uncomfortable, in my opinion. Okay, mm -hmm. so. You know, there's always a fight when you have somebody who's a, a person of his stature over narrative. How should he be remembered? Is, was, sure. he, was he the uh, cuddly grandfather with a big smile, you know, 
telegenic smile, mm-hmm. or was he also a, a military leader? Was he also a person of great courage who took risks uh, that very few people who had, say they admire him would have taken themselves? Okay, and and so there's a lot more to this man and to this movement than most people realize. One of the nice quotes about me in the book, a blurb from one of the leaders of the armed struggle who who went on to become a minister of intelligence in South Africa, Ronnie Castro says that, you know, I, I, um, I'm i an outsider who thinks like an insider. So, I, you know, I, I think South Africa has taught me a lot about humanity, about the issues of social change, about the role of leadership, about the the values that, that we need to instill in our children as well, because even in South Africa, there are many kids, the so-called born freeze, born after mm-hmm. Mandela became president, who really don't know the history very well. And hopefully, in my book, I also have a, a chapter for them talking about the lessons of Nelson Mandela's life as I yes. see them. Danny, you've done an excellent job, not just in this interview, but I must again say the book was a pleasure to read. I learned a great deal about Nelson Mandela, more than the iconography that you you get when you look at newspapers or or listen to the media. The uh, website is madibabook.com. The book itself, which I, I urge people to read, is Madiba A to Z. The Many Faces of Nelson Mandela. The author is Danny Schechter. Danny, it's been a pleasure talking with you, and uh, good luck with the book. It's available, I know, on Amazon because I purchased it. And where else else is it available? Well, it's available in a lot of bookstores, and you can order it, certainly. Seven Stories Press has a website as well. That's the publisher of the book. You can order it through MedibaBook.com. So the book is out there, but, you know, my hope is that people will not only get this book, but share it with their kids, share it with their families, give the gift of freedom is what I like to say, you know, in this holiday season. And let's let's keep um, Mandela Madiba's name alive. Let's, you know, teach people the real meaning of his life, not just, uh, you know, as a news event, which is, is here today and gone tomorrow. And that's yes. what my hope is. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you, Danny.